Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. just uh dive right in what's on your what's your mug say my mug says um dunn brothers coffee arden hills ah okay is that a local coffee shop yeah it's like a i think it's i think it's more regional than local okay the minnesota thing cool yeah um okay so anyways before i get off in left field because i have a tendency (laughs) to do that and then to camp out for a very long time. Um, We'll get started and I want to honor your time too. So first of all, thank you so much for just doing this and for taking the time to be a guest. I'm super excited. I know we did back and forth a little bit about kind of what you um, had on your heart to talk about and I am just over the moon excited (laughs) for what you have to say because I think it's so um, necessary and, and relevant and timely. But first, okay. before we get into all of that, we'll just start with introductions. Um, so just kind of let everybody know, you know, who you are, where are you, where you're from, uh, what you do, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, um, I'm Jenny. I live in uh, Minneapolis area and I work, I'm actually here at work right now, um, at Bethel seminary as the assistant to the Dean, um, do a lot of work with some faculty, um, basically help run the the day-to-day operations. And then I'm also a student here working on my MDiv. So we're a couple hats here. And then I'm a pastoral intern at North City Church, which is a local church, a new local church in uh, North Minneapolis area. So I'm on the teaching team there. And then I also help with some like creative arts things as needed. Um, And then jumping back into worship ministry soon. So I do a lot of things, Um, have my hand in a few different places, but that's kind of the general thing that I'm doing right now. So my world's pretty, um, academic and, um, but I love it. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So just a couple things to fill your time with. Yeah. Just, you know, a few. Just, just a <laughs> That's great. I always uh, tell people it's the only season of life I could ever do all those things. I can't yeah. imagine. I know people who do everything that I'm doing, but are married and have kids. And I'm like, how are you functioning? Right. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's, that's awesome. I think everything that you're doing is so valuable and important and, and I love it. Um, and so we're super glad to have you here today. So the first thing that I have to ask you, and this is what I ask everybody, mm-hmm. uh, because of course my two great loves in life are, and I say this every week, food and leadership. Um, so if we were gathering a group of leaders around the table, which I know is not foreign to you, it's a huge part of, of what you do often, but if we were not virtual and we were actually gathering people around a table to invest and pour into them, um, first and foremost, what would you be feeding us? Um, that's an easy, easy answer. Um, I'd be making you mung food and, um, I feel like I often tell people the way that I describe monk food is that it's like the most loved family member of most monk families. Um, <laughs> like it doesn't make sense if it's not there. And, um, but specifically I'd be making, um, I there's not a, a direct translation into English, but there is, it's, it's called in Hmong, it's called pho gao. Um, but it's kind of like, um, the Hmong version of a crepe. Okay. So it's like a, it's like a rice flour based, um, uh, mix and it just actually actually looks like milk that you're putting on the on the stove and then you um so you fry it you flip it over and you put um ground pork green onion and cilantro in it 
Um, that's like ultimate favorite comfort food for me. So I wish I could have a more holistic, like balanced meal, but that's kind of what I'd want to feed people. <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Trying new things. So if you could, you know, kind of Italian food, we have an idea of what that means. American food, we have an idea of what that means. Yep. Uh, if you could kind of conceptualize for us like Hmong food, what, what does that kind of consist of? Yeah, you know, Hmong food, so Hmong people don't have, we don't have our own country. And so in a lot of ways, you've created our own food based on the uh, historically where we've been in different parts of the world um, in our history. So China, Laos, Thailand, um, Vietnam, all these, all these, I think, I, I often think of it, and maybe I'm biased, but is that we have taken kind of the best parts of food in those places and made it our own. Um, in a lot of ways, our food is actually a little bit more simplistic. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if that's a category, but that's the way that I explain it to people. Um, and it's kind of the best of a lot of worlds when it comes to Asian food. Awesome. And so who taught you how to cook? Oh, my mom. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not just my mom, it's, it's, it was a lot of like anytime big family events were around, I was helping out with little things. And so some of it was just by watching and then, um, trying to replicate and then eventually being able to replicate. <laughs> yeah. So do yeah. you get a lot of requests from friends? Are there certain things, um, that you make that people just want all the time? You know, it's, it's those roll, I, uh, to the, to the English speakers, I call them white rolls. Um, what I just talked about. Um, and so anytime I make those, those are a big request. Often, um, I have my own version of Hmong egg rolls. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you've ever been eating an egg roll at a Vietnamese or Thai restaurant, it's pretty close to that. The big difference is that there's um, these uh, these noodles in it that make it a little bit different than others. Um, so I think those two things. One time I made, um, we had like a faculty staff potluck at work and there's maybe 15 of us and I made 75 egg rolls oh my God. and they were all gone by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're definitely a... Uh, a staple now in a lot of friend groups, people requesting it, wanting it. Yep. Oh my gosh. I remember a good friend of mine back in Virginia, um, her grandma's church would do that every year as a fundraiser. All the ladies, Mm -hmm. um, the older ladies would get together and they would make the egg rolls and you could freeze them. And I swear I ever had in my entire (laughs) life, I would buy boxes of them, you know, whole containers and then just stuff the freezer with them. Uh Yeah. Yep all myself it is absolutely like a kind of soul food comfort food it's 100 comfort food so good that's awesome all right well now that i'm super hungry i know right happens you know i i this is the question that i start with and then you know we're 10 minutes into a podcast and i'm like oh my gosh i'm so starving right now that <laughs> so i probably need to change my icebreaker question it's not good for me personally or just like have like snacks by you as you're doing it you know yes that that's you know what that's my ultimate dream and goal one day for the table podcast is that instead of doing virtual interviews, we're doing like live interviews and we get to share a meal together. Oh yeah. That'd be the best. That'd be the best. And the guest. I'd love to make you Hmong food someday. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> next time I'm in Minnesota. Yes. Yes. Sure. In the summertime, of course, because yeah. like the whole, I'm also going to move my laptop. So don't be alarmed. Okay. Um, all right. So down to the real meat of the conversation. Yeah. Um, not that the food isn't important because we all know that Jesus loves to gather people around a table and break bread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from amazing monk food, uh, what is it that you feel like in this season that you bring to the leadership table? 
Yeah, you know, I, I feel like a lot of places in my life, I, I feel like anything right now feels like a leadership opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm, reach, I'm stepping into a season where it feels like I found what I'm most passionate about. Um, and I know that that changes, but I think right now what, what it is, is actually a lot of the table concept, mm-hmm. um, kind of the hospitality of the table, um, not just what you bring to it, but how, like who you bring to the table. Yeah. And so some of it is, I don't know how that translates necessarily into leadership. It's definitely also a season of leading by example, not necessarily by title or vocation per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that changes the way that I feel like I bring things to the table. Um, but right now, I think one of the biggest things is an Asian American woman's voice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Asian American Christian woman, those are four very loaded things. And so um, putting those together, I think, just creates a space for people where a space and a perspective um, that's not better or worse, just, I think, needed mm-hmm. um, the same way that all voices are needed at the table in order to see a more holistic picture of what God um, intends for us as his people. I, I think that's what I bring. Um, and and I think I think Asian Americans are kind of in a moment right now um, where we're finally realizing and not finally we're we're in a more public way able to use our voices. And so I think for me right now, it's a matter of um, actually coming up to the table <laughs> and like using the voice. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that, that whole journey of actually coming to the table, uh, realizing that you have a place at the table and you have a voice and you have something to contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the, um, I guess, roadblocks and how did you work past them? I'm, I guess right now what I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about the person listening who says, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know if I have a seat at the table and I'd love to, but where do I even begin? And so how would you kind of mentor somebody through mm-hmm. that journey? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is even before you're looking for a, a seat at the table or trying to figure out which table to sit at, it, I think to even just find some like sense of self, meaning um, how do you understand your own ethnic journey? How do you understand your own identity as an Asian American person? Uh, for me, it's, it's more specifically among American women. And so there's um, that added element of culture. Um, but I think in general, Asian Americans are kind of grouped into this one category, um, which is a social construct. But in reality, there are so many more, there's so many intricate details to who I am as among women. Um, and then, but I think to start is, okay, how do I understand myself as an Asian American person? And um, how do I sense my voice existing in the world of people who are welcoming, welcoming my voice? Um, and then unfortunately needing to also understand, okay, how has the Asian American voice either been silenced? Um, how have certain narratives been put on us that we never gave to ourselves? Um, needing to kind of deconstruct what is really true about who you are and who I am as an Asian American woman. And um, I think one of the, for me personally, one of the barriers was just that I didn't realize that I had some, um, that I was kind of letting external narratives um, tell me the truth, or I was letting external narratives tell me who I was. Um, Certain stereotypes, um, 
that I would maybe see to be true in certain places, I assumed was also true of me. Um, or, you know, I would, I would hear about microaggressions and um, I would wonder like, oh, I haven't actually personally experienced some of those things. Um, and so I, I assumed to myself, like, even though I haven't been the recipient of microaggressions, it happens to other people. And so how will I respond to that, even though I have not personally experienced that? What is my place and my role at the table for those who have been the recipients? And I don't like to use the word victim, but who have been a part of um, receiving and or been on the receiving end of those microaggressions. And um, if anything, me coming to the table is not about me coming to the table. It's about um, representing and I know that I can't represent a whole, all of Asian America, but um, I think it is an, I want my voice to be heard. It's want, it's that I want to come to the table so that Asian American voices, whether mine or those who come after me and alongside me, that their voices would be heard as well. Yeah. And so as you were in this process of deconstructing and discovering, was that something that was sort of like a you and Jesus moment or was this done in community? You know, I mean, it's, it was definitely both. I, um, gosh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the exact timing, but um, I would say the most pivotal moment for me in this whole journey was um, summer 2018 when Crazy Rich Asians came out. And um, so I have a background in film. I have a film degree, have been always really passionate about it and have believed in it as like um, just a really good way or just a really beautiful way to bring goodness and kindness into the world. I know that a lot of films don't bring that <laughs> um, or that they're misunderstood and um, thus people don't see those films as that. But I think I just have this visual, this picture that God has a very specific place for the film, for the film industry um, to bring the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I have my theological understanding of what it looks like to bring the kingdom is that it doesn't just have to be Christians that do it. Um, if we're all created in the image of God, um, we all have the ability to be like God. And so whether or not people know it or believe it, they have the ability to usher in the kingdom. And so people might disagree with that um, theologically, and that's fine. But um, I think Hollywood, um, for better or for worse, ultimately has a similar mission as the church. Um, and so all that said, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, I had all this stuff about a film in my mind. Um, and it was the first time that in my adult life that I had ever seen an all Asian cast in a major movie in the theater. And, um, and it told a, a contemporary story of an Asian American girl and um, kept thinking like, no, I'm not crazy rich. And I hope I'm not just crazy. <laughs> and, um, you know, but um, she was this girl who was like, she's a professor at NYU. She's dating this guy and she goes to meet his parents or his mom. And she doesn't understand like, okay, what are the cultural, like I'm, I'm Asian and I'm an American, but I wasn't, I was born in China, but grew up in America. And I don't understand how I exist in either world. Um, and it's, I mean, in general, it's just a really good chick flick. <laughs> um, but I walked out of this movie just feeling really like emotional and I kept, thinking, I don't think it's just because it was all Asians. Like, I don't know what's going on in me. And um, reflecting back, it was, there's this line in the movie where um, Nick, who is the guy in the movie, he's talking to his mom. They're in Singapore and his mom, so Nick born in Singapore, living in New York, go back to visit their parents. Nick says to his mom, like, oh, I thought you'd be happy that the first girl I bring home is a Chinese girl. 
and she looks at him and smiles and says, um, she says, Chinese American girl. And just that distinguishing factor, I was like, oh, that's so simple. But the Asian, I mean, the Asian American story is so different than the Asian story. Hmm. Um, and I think that just helped me to differentiate that I was feeling tension, like actual tension in myself. I was trying to be a leader and um, disciple women and um, do a, a seminary degree. But I was trying to do all of these things, but had not yet come into an understanding of how my Asianness um, as a woman fit into all of that. Um, and the movie helped me. Honestly, I think it, for the first time, it kind of opened up the door for me to I don't think it even opened up the door. I feel like I, I finally kicked down the door <laughs> of whatever barriers were there holding me back from really pursuing um, leadership as an Asian woman. I think before that, I felt like I had to come to the table as others needed me to be. I'm also a two in the Enneagram, so that's there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think there's just this sense for me that coming to the table and helping to break down barriers, a lot of it is pioneering for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's the important thing that you um, bring up, because it's really easy, something that I hear really often in like, I, I just to generalize, I'll say, you know, the white culture is that, oh, but we're all just children of God. And that identity yeah. comes first. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, yes, we are. But mm-hmm. This good and wise and discerning creative God created us in all of these very different ways. You know, it's not talking about gender differences because, oh, well, we're all children of God. Like, yeah, okay, but the fact that I'm a woman means something and that means something to the kingdom and Mm -hmm. it means something to God. And therefore, our cultural and ethnic identity also means something. And so can you talk a little bit about um, just the importance of and the value to the kingdom of our ethnic identity. Yep, yep. So um, if you read through Ephesians, Paul in chapter two talks to um, he's, he's, his audience. It, it's clear that both Gentiles, so Gentile is, is non-Jew. So it was either you're a Jew or you're anything else. Yep. Um, and first of all, the, the is, Israel story, like when... God says to Israel, you were my chosen people. He doesn't, they're not chosen because they're Israelites. They're chosen because God says that they're Israel or they're chosen because God says they're chosen. And because of that, everything about them matters, their ethnicity included. Everything about how God decided to bring the kingdom about as we know it now, and as it continues to be brought about was through the very specific ethnic cultural identity and journey of the Israelites. And of course, we know that when Jesus comes into the story, that it isn't just the Israelites anymore. It's everybody. That's why they, that's why it says there's now no Jew nor Gentile. Sometimes people hear that, hear that and they think, oh, your ethnicity doesn't matter. But what that really means is that God is saying it isn't just the Israelites' culture and ethnicity that matters anymore. It's everybody's. Mm-hmm. And, and in a lot of ways, if it was, if, if, even if it was, okay, now anybody can be identified as a person of God. If, if that was true and it only continued through, the, through Israel's um, culture and heritage, that would have been a monocultural way of doing Christianity. And I think that's the risk that we, um, or that, that's the, um, we, we risk the integrity of what God really meant by no Jew, no Gentile, when we say, oh, we're all children of God. Um, 
And, and so in choosing to, to not even choosing in the command to um, steward your ethnic identity in a way that brings the kingdom to life um, in doing those things, then we see more and more of what God always intended for his people. And, and we see more and more of what it means for not just um, these elite Israelites, which wasn't even a thing. I mean, there, it, scripturally, people thought that they were elite, but God always intended that when, um, when you read the Old Testament and God commands them to follow the law, that wasn't about legalism. That was about them being identified as the people of God. Um, and so it, they follow the law so that they could be identified as people of God. And so for us, how can we follow the things that are part of our ethnic journey and heritage in order to be identified as the people of God? And so that's kind of been my understanding and my framework for how I approach um, uh, cultural and ethnic identity. Um, and even in a lot of ways, how I help other people to just see like, hey, you're, you know, whether you're anyone who is of, of white majority in America, I, I want to challenge them to, to think about like, hey, there was one time where your ancestors came here and they were um, ethnic minorities, maybe not racial minorities, but ethnic minorities. Like there's a reason why certain people now um, that their grand their grandparents grandparents spoke Swedish, mm-hmm. but now they're like, oh, I'm just eating Swedish pancakes, but I'm not. I don't really have an ethnic identity anymore. But you do. You have an ethnic identity, and how will you choose to steward that for the kingdom of God? Yeah, we've even whitewashed ourselves. The, the yeah. white identity culture. So something that you just said, I think, was really key. You talked about. Um, you mentioned at least the difference between ethnicity and race. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, um, I think that's a distinction that, um, it, at least maybe in majority culture isn't made very often because mm-hmm. you do just kind of tend to broad brushstroke everything. So yeah. can you just, I know it's a very basic thing, but I think, mm-hmm. um, for, for some people it's super critical. Can you talk a little bit about the difference yeah. between ethnicity and race? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this actually just comes down to vocabulary. Um, if you open up the dictionary and look up nationality, race, ethnicity, and culture, they will be related but different. So nationality, where were you born? Um, ethnicity, what is your, your, who do you identify yourself with? Uh, whether that's by what you, whether that's by what you look like or um, cultural, um, c- cultural norms. Um, ethnicity is really about, um, yes, it is about where you were born, but it's about the kind of the core of who your people are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, nationally, my nationality, I'm an American. Um, my ethnicity is Hmong, but my race is really more of a, what do I, like, I'm Asian. Mm-hmm. It's a um, kind of color your skin type thing that was created, like a system that was created in order to identify people um, for like a census. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, so race is about um, like your um, biological, uh, what you look like. Um, I don't know, that, that's not the ineloquent way of saying it, but um, that's also what it is. And then, so that's, so race is a biological thing. Um, ethnicity is more about who you are, how you, how you identify yourself. I, I would say ethnicity and culture are more closely related. Mm-hmm. Um, ethnicity um, is the part where you, where you become, where you differentiate uh, between different race. So in Asian culture, um, there you have, or in Asian anyone who's Asian, um, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, um, Hmong, what have you, we all fit into the Asian category, but our ethnicities are all those specific things. 
And I love too what you said about that everybody has an ethnic journey. And mm-hmm. I think so often, especially for white majority culture, you know, we think, well, ethnicity, you know, some to, to use the term ethnic as anybody that's not white, but I have an ethnic journey and mm-hmm. there's a significance to that and there's a beauty to it. And there's also lament to it, but yes. not digging into our ethnic journeys is I think we, we miss a lot of the fullness we do. Mm-hmm. And when we don't have all, like you said, everybody has a voice to share. Everybody has something to add to the story of God that's being written throughout the scope of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so we're missing something when all of those voices and ethnicities aren't there. I love the distinction that you made about the passage in Ephesians, you know, where he says there's no longer Jew or Gentile didn't mean that, okay, it, race, culture, ethnicity doesn't matter anymore. What he meant mm-hmm. was, no, we're all welcomed in, we're all invited in, and it all matters. And therefore, let's yep. bring it all to the table. And so when you think about a world, a culture, a kingdom that um, doesn't include the Asian American or Asian expression and experience, what do we miss out on? What are some of the things, you know, culturally, just the understanding mm-hmm. of an expression of God that that we don't get in its fullness when we aren't being intentional to include every voice? Yeah. Um, the first thing that I think of is um, that most Asian cultures um, function in an honor-shame culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But America is, by default, a guilt-innocence culture. So, So what I mean by that, um, guilt innocence is um, a very, it's very individualistic. Um, it's what you do, like everyone's individually responsible for themselves. Yes, you function into like a family unit or a church unit or a friend group, but ultimately you are your own person in your own life. What you do typically um, in, a, in a guilt innocence culture reflects only on you. Um, your um, accountability falls back on you. Um, but in an honor shame culture, um, and what, what also I will say about guilt innocence culture is that I, I think one of the good things about it is that it does um, drive people to be pretty, um, in a good way, ambitious. Mm-hmm. And it allows people to um, kind of push through the like um, the narratives of you can't be um, everything. You, you can't just follow your dreams. I think there's this kind of um, innate um, drivenness to it that I think is really valuable in a lot of ways. Um, but the honor or, or um, honor shame culture really ultimately better phrased as collectivist culture. Um, and so one of the, one of, one of the ways that I, I best describe it is um, honor shame culture. It's not just that um, what one person does reflects on the other people, um, but it's more that anything that you do can actually bring honor to uh, everybody. So when you think about Mulan, <laughs> which I'll bring like, honor to us all. <laughs> best with, yeah. Like that's what Mulan means when she says, I will bring honor to us all. It's not even this like pressure. Like some of it, you do feel pressure sometimes. Mm-hmm. But when, she, when, when, when Mulan says, I'll bring honor to us all, it's, it's in her mind, she says, it's basically saying, I will do everything that I can so that honor and protection and, and um, goodness is brought onto the family. Because for her, she's not doing, living her life just for her. For her, um, everything that she does, she wants it to, um, it's not just about making her family look good, uh, but it's about her family being able to, to thrive as well and alongside her. Um, and uh, if we're going to, if we're talking about movies, um, so when when Parasite won uh, Best Picture um, and when he won Best Director, 
he he honored every single one of the other directors. Um, he honored Martin Scorsese, who went before him. He actually quoted him and said, I have lived my life by this quote. I think it's something about um, the most personal is the most creative when it comes to film. And, and that, that's, that comes from a, a collectivist mindset. Um, rather than just saying, I think my mom and my dad, um, it's we all, even though I'm the one that won this Oscar, <laughs> um, we actually all really did this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the heart of, cult, of collectivist culture. And when you, read, when you read the Bible, honestly, everybody lives in a collectivist culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually normal in the Bible to live in an ownership culture. And so I think in um, American Christianity, we actually need to be the ones to be contextualizing from our culture into ownership. Or when we read um, the Bible, we need to contextualize. Um, and sometimes that's why we, um, it becomes difficult to contextualize because it feels like, well, I should just really be responsible for my own discipleship or, um, or, or, or my faith is my own and I don't talk about it. I think um, that statement, my faith is my own and I don't talk about it, comes from um, an individualist culture. So there's nothing inherently good or bad about um, honor, shame culture or guilt, innocence culture. It's a matter of how you choose to exercise um, your own life and your own identity in those cultures. Yeah. And, and we miss, we miss so much. We miss the fullness when our only experience has been that which we were brought up in. I mean, mm-hmm. one, I, you know, I feel super honored that my family, um, just, you know, being military and, and with my dad's government job, we just moved around a lot mm-hmm. and they've been overseas. And so, you know, we've done stints of time in Africa and Europe and being in all of these different countries and on all of these different continents and uh, worshiping with different groups of people and communing and breaking bread in different cultures has, it has gone just it's gone such a long way in helping me to understand um, how small my Western perspective and scope can be sometimes, not in a bad way. Cause we all do it. You know, yeah. we all tend to see things through the lens that we were born into and given. Um, but we're just, we're missing the fullness I think of who God is and the kingdom of God that's advancing when mm-hmm. we keep our scope that which we were born into. Right. The church, the church itself church itself is meant to be collective culture not there's not a single person or a single country or a denomination um, or anything like that 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 fully represents who the church is meant to be and nor does nor does one one unit um, express the fullness of Jesus and of Jesus himself yeah. and so in order to to really experience all of Jesus we need all of the church <laughs> we need everybody um, and it's not even like a, we need to do this together like that. I feel like there's the kind of a um, rose colored glasses way of saying that, but it really is a, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder. And if we don't, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice. Mm-hmm. We're actually um, putting ourselves into a deficit if we don't fully step out to pursue um, understanding God through different lenses, understanding God through different cultural contexts, through different racial cultures. Um, and And more than that, um, we do our, ourselves a disservice when we don't look back to history and mourn and lament and mm-hmm. own and have accountability. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's so important about what you're saying, th- this is a lifelong work, the yeah. work of, of learning and growing and deeply entwining our lives with the lives of those around us, especially who are different from us and in 
embedding our experience as one with the other. I think mm-hmm. the danger, and you and I texted a little bit about this, is yeah. you know, diversity is such a, a buzzword right now, right? Like yes. everybody wants diversity on their staff and diversity on their mm-hmm. teams and, and all of that. But all too often, it, it stays surface level. I'm not actually learning about you. Um, and, and diversity, I think, too often gets translated into tokenism, the token yeah. hire, whether yeah, it's gender, ethnicity, whatever it may be. And what really ends up happening is, okay, my diversity is this token hire that I just made, and yet I'm not changing anything about our work environment or our culture. Basically, you need to come integrate into who we are. Mm-hmm. And so you were mentioning, um, you used the word representation, there's a difference between tokenism and representation. And so can yes. you talk a little bit about that? And what does it look like for us to, you know, entwine our lives with the lives of others and, and to mm-hmm. learn and to grow and to really embrace the larger representation of the kingdom of God um, without getting into that place of tokenism? What do we need to know? What do we need to understand? How do we do that? Yeah, I would say, I think one of the first signs of tokenism is, um, that it's about appearance and it's about a quota and meeting certain or like checking off marks. Um, I think true diversity is not everybody, every single race is, exists in the room. I think true diversity representation is about whose, whose voices are actually being heard, who's talking, who's in a position of authority. Um, one of the most classic examples I think of is um, if you, yeah, if you make a hire, if you, if you're like, oh, our, all of our staff is is white, um, so we're going to bring in the Asian American girl, um, and she's going to be hired on as. If you're talking about church, um, the Asian American girl is now the creative director. Yes, her title is creative director, but does she have a voice on the teaching team? Mm-hmm. Um, she may not be preaching, but does she get? Does she have input? Does she have a voice of authority? Um, do you bring her on uh, to talk about other things? I think a lot of time people of color are brought onto anything just to talk about diversity, just to talk about other people of color as if we represent everybody. (laughs) Um, So there's kind of this fine line, this, this um, it's not even a line. It's like a fog almost. There's this fog that exists that if we're not careful, we'll kind of slowly seep from one place to the other. We'll slowly move move from representation to tokenism. And so this is a very learned thing. Tokenism often, um, I think belittles people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, tokenism often dehumanizes and minimizes someone's ethnic journey and ethnic culture and identity. Um, but I think representation in its true sense is about the other person. It has nothing to do with um, oh, what will we look like as an organization or a church. Um, representation is ultimately about, hey, I see that your specific ethnic identity and journey that you have a voice that we need and we will give you and elevate your, your position or elevate your voice um, because we know that we are incomplete without it. Um, and if anything, like anytime I feel, um, anytime I feel like I'm a token, I know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and anytime I feel like accurately represented, I feel empowered and I don't question myself. Um, and if I'm accurately represented, whether by other Asian Americans or elevated by, um, majority culture, uh, by white people, I, I, I feel that they're my ally. Um, if I'm accurately represented and chosen for representation reasons, then I, then I don't doubt whether or not, I don't doubt why I'm there. Um, 
and and I, and, I, and some of that is just like um, my own intuition. Um, and anytime tokenism is there, the person that you're tokenizing knows it, <laughs> um, and it it will be it won't be long before they begin to question why they're there. Um, if you have brought someone on staff at a church, uh, if you have hired someone, if you have whether it's a, a person of color or a woman or um, anybody, anybody who's considered a minority to mm-hmm. represent um, that whole group, um, I promise you that they will know. They will know if they're the token and they will not be there long if you continue to treat them like a token. And so I would say the best thing in this area is curiosity. Um, curiosity and humility. If you're wondering, oh my gosh, did I, did I bring this person on as a token? I think um, there is a proper way to move from tokenism into representation. That even if you brought someone on as a token, um, I, th- I think because we live in the, an upside down kingdom that there is grace there. Um, and mm-hmm. if you ask the questions and do your own research and don't expect the person of color or the minority to do the work for you, um, there can be some real amazing partnership there. Yeah. So a phrase that you used a couple times, and and I don't know if you can actually define this or, or kind of put a framework around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be difficult, but you talked about accurate representation that when yeah. you accurately represented. Um, what what does that mean? Um, I guess I guess really what I was trying to say is that that I'm not a stereotype to you. Mm-hmm. Um, that if um, I guess I don't have a specific like example, but I think. I guess I should say I'm. I know if I'm being inaccurately represented. If you're, if you are um, generalizing all of Asian America to one thing, um, or you're not willing to admit when you've done that, then I feel um, honestly just dishonored. Like I feel unknown and unheard. Um, that's a big part of tokenism is that someone feels um, unseen, mm-hmm. um, even though they're there and they're present. Um, and I think the feeling accurately represented is not so much about how you talk about me or um, the specific things you say about me, but being accurately represented is more about um, the intention, not the intention. It's about um, like, why am I really there? Like, why do you really want me here? Like, you know, um, am I here because I'm Asian or am I here because my voice as an Asian woman matters and you trust me? Mm-hmm. That's a big piece to those trust. Yeah. That's huge. That's good. And it's, you know, I know it's not easy work. I mean, I don't care if we're talking about a staff full of men that brings on a woman or we're talking mm-hmm. about a majority culture staff that finally brings on a minority, but the, the whole culture has to change. And, yes. and I think one of the things um, that was so valuable to me are my former uh, lead pastor, boss, you know, mentor person, mm-hmm. um, when, when this became super important for us as a staff, something that we talked about a lot and, and even in our church, you know, valuing uh, diversity was that majority culture has to defer to the minority. Uh, majority culture has to be the one that comes in, like you said, with the posture of humility and questions and has to do that work of deferring. And the whole culture, you know, has to change. And I think we don't even realize how often the culture of our team or staff, whether it's a business or church, whatever else, um, or even just the culture of our home 
You know, yeah. I mean, for someone who's listening, who's even just thinking about their, their family context, it's very easy for the culture of our community. And by that, I mean, the group of people that we choose to spend our time with and associate with, um, everything does have to change when we do bring in someone who's different. When we do bring in a woman into a team of men, that, that whole story, that whole dynamic naturally has to shift. If we're truly mm-hmm. wanting to integrate, if we're truly wanting to integrate our gender experience, if we're truly wanting to yeah. integrate our ethnic and our culture experience, the whole culture of the rest of the group itself has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyways, it's not, it's not easy work, but it's so <laughs> necessary and it's so valuable. And, and I yeah. know someone who's been part of staffs that operated in that, it, it absolutely was transformative for me. I mean, it changed the way that I looked at, at so many things and it even changed some of my theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally critical. Um, and so, so one of the other things that I wanted to kind of talk to you about is what does it look like? Cause I'm, I'm assuming that because you've reached this place of self-awareness and, and identity and, and all of that, um, that you are in spaces, hopefully where you are feeling accurately represented, that you know, that you're not, um, a, a token hire. And so I think one of the things that we have to be careful of, I think is, um, like you said, that don't rely on the one person of color or minority or woman or whatever on your team to do all of the educating. So we don't want to put that whole weight and burden and pressure on somebody. But at the same time, the teams that you're part of, you do bring the voice of an Asian American woman. And so without Mm -hmm. being the token, but actually representing, what does that look like for you when you step into the places where you're leading? How is it that you are bringing your unique voice and experience to the table? And for someone who kind of finds themselves in a place who recognizes, okay, cool, I'm here. I am able to bring representation. Yeah. How do I go about doing that in a way that's good and wise and healthy for me? Um, what, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, honestly, some of it is is just like I'm always aware of my Asianness. Um, and if I'm in certain spaces where um, where everybody else around me is white, mm-hmm. I will never be the default. And so I'm always aware of 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 that. Um, and so some of the, the very specific Asian American things that I bring to the table um, are, are really uh, one, just to say it like, Hey, uh, you know, to kind of suggest, make suggestions without saying something like, okay, Hey, we're not talking about anybody um, who's a person of color. Um, rather. So, so sometimes it's just needing to find discernment in how to say, Hey, what if you brought in this kind of this voice? Um, and, but other times it does require like, Hey, um, Nobody here is a person of color. Like it's it's needing to differ, differentiate between what what situation requires which kind of calling out. Um, so there's that, and then I think um, as it relates to like um, helping to lead others in that um, and wanting to help empower other people to learn and be teachers. Um, some of it is just reminding people like, hey, we have to respond to culture as the church. Um, we cannot be a reactive group of people to culture. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, the church, as you read it, has always been, um, in some ways, has been reactive. Um, and that's a general statement. Um, but when you read 
scripture, like when you think about um, that passage that I was talking about in Ephesians, there's a part of it that said, where Paul says to, says um, the wall of hostility has been broken down. And the wall of hostility refers to this part, this part in the, in the Jewish temple where um, it wasn't like there was a sign that says you are now entering the wall of hostility. <laughs> um, but it was about, there was a certain, an actual barrier where um, after that barrier, it was only Jewish men that were allowed. Anything before was only um, uh, women allowed. And, and before that was the court of the Gentiles. So if you kind of picture like um, a, like a mall or something, it's like Gentiles were only allowed in the lobby. <laughs> um, and so when Paul says the wall of hostility has been broken, what he is ultimately saying is that there no longer needs to be this like wall, you know, um, and, and, and then the, the life of God's people, their practices had to change based on that. Um, and so as a, in a day-to-day kind of leadership way, it's needing to navigate like, okay, what part of culture has changed? We have to remember there doesn't have to be a barrier. There doesn't have to be all these questions about who gets to do what when we all are supposed to be doing everything, <laughs> you know, like, yes, there is a, a place for like gifts and what people are good at, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that the identity of God's people, every single one of us, no matter what we look like, is the same. But how we choose to express that will be different. And so in, at a leadership table, and it's only being expressed in one way, um, what does it look like to be an advocate for others? And I think that's also ultimately what it comes down to is that for me, being having an Asian American voice is not just about advocating for other Asian Americans. It's about I have I live in the fil- in the day to day filter of um, I my culture is not the default um, and other people and that that's what privilege is all about they don't realize that they are the default <laughs> um, and so I have just come to understand my voice as a more um, I think we had talked about this is that I, I my top two in um, the fivefold survey are prophet and evangelist mm-hmm. and so it's almost like impossible for me not to say something about like hey um that's not the future that we're supposed to be looking towards. Like we're not supposed to be this monocultural expression of God. Um, And so what does it look like for us to really live into not just a multicultural, but an intercultural um, kind of life as God's people together? Yeah, that's good. So on the other end of that, because obviously, you know, you've, you've, shared so much good stuff with us and and there's this huge work of advancement that you're doing Mm -hmm. and this work of um, representation. So the other thing that I want to then ask you about two things actually that I would love to have you speak to a little bit, because I know, you know, I I know where you live. I know the people that you're surrounded with. I know how you're being raised up as a leader and what you're into um, soul care. I want to talk to you about soul care and community, you know, there's so much advancement that you're doing, but then, you know, Joe Saxon always says you have to retreat to advance. And Mm -hmm. so how have you talked to me about the value of community and, Mm -hmm. and, and not, and by community, I don't mean like the broader community. I mean, your core, I mean that safe space where you're, you're not having to represent or be a voice or anything like that. But talk to Mm -hmm. me about the value of and how you've built that community. And then kind of along with that, I feel like it goes hand in hand. What does soul care look like and why is it so important, especially when you are living out this day-to-day work of representation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think, gosh, that's such a little question. I, I think for me personally, the 
finding community has never really been difficult. Um, I think because my personality is to just jump in and do all the things. Um, I think the places where I am naturally come with community. Um, and, and I don't think that's true for everybody. I think the, I just feel really lucky um, to, and I know lucky is a strange word to use, but honestly, I feel really fortunate to be in the places that I am where community is built in. And there have been different seasons of my life where um, I thought to myself, like when I first started, when I first realized that I was being called to be a pastor, I was like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? You know? <laughs> and so for me, I needed a community of women who were also pursuing that. And so um, it was, I, I, and then I ended up being in a class, a preaching class taught by Staff O'Brien. Um, and there were three other women in the class that were on the same journey as me. And I was like, these are my people. And we all kind of acknowledged it together. And now we're, we're still in this texting group. And every once in a while, when one of us, you know, reads an article or experiences something um, just kind of annoying <laughs> um, as it relates to being a, a, a woman in leadership, we text each other. And we, 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 ha- we have this understanding now that when we text each other, it's not so much, hey, I'm looking for advice. It's more, I just need to say this out loud because if I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say to someone else. <laughs> um, so it's not even, it's like a, it's a venting space, but it's also a, I know that these women, because they're doing what I am doing, um, we are in it together um, and they won't let me stay to stay annoyed. They won't let me just stay in this place of frustration that our relationship really is more about being productive in um, moving past and not even, not even moving past, moving um, away from the lies that are told about us as a woman in ministry um, and moving towards truth. And I think that's true of it, of other areas of my life too. Right now, the most prominent community that I have just like craved is other Asian women. And um, I would say a lot of my, a lot of the Asian women around me in leadership, um, it's more like distance relationships right now. And um and really briefly, I'll just share. I, I just got back from, this was a couple of weekends ago. I got back from Vivian Mabuni's event, a live podcast recording. Um, it was called, her podcast is called Someday It's Here. Um, everybody should listen to it. Shameless plug. Um, and, um, but she recorded one live and it was for Asian American women. And we were out in California and there was this one moment during worship where I was standing in the back and um, I kept thinking to myself, wait, is this, is this really the first time I've been in a room of, of Asian American Christian women voices? Mm-hmm. I, like, I literally kept thinking like, no, this, this can't be the first time, but it really was. And it took me like five seconds into worship before I was just like bawling because for me, it was like, I feel like I can breathe. I feel like I can breathe. And I think soul care is a lot about breathing. Yeah. Um, sometimes like, you do need to physically breathe because you feel anxious, <laughs> but other times it's like, where do you feel like you can go to exhale where you don't have to have a filter, where you don't have to explain yourself. Um, and I don't have one community where I do all of that with, mm-hmm. I think um, not one community can feed you in all ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, and that's just my personality maybe. <laughs> um, but I have different pockets of communities where um I know that I can go to receive and I don't have to give and vice versa. Um, and I think as a two, <laughs> as a, an Enneagram two, um, I do this weird thing where when I know that I need soul care, kind of like a day-to-day kind of soul care, and I need someone to ask me how I'm doing, I'm too afraid to be needy. 
And so I do this dumb thing where I, I'll text somebody who I know will ask me how I'm doing. I'll text somebody and I'll say, hey, how are you? I just was just thinking about you and wanted to check in. Um, but in reality, I'm like, I'm asking how you're doing so that you ask, so you ask me how I am so I can vent. So soul care for me has been just like not being afraid to say, hey, I'm, I'm like just needing some space, needing to go to happy hour and have some fun and laugh. Um, and so there's kind of the practical things of soul care. And then there's the, where can you exhale? Where can I breathe? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's so, so good. And, and I think, you know, to prioritizing those spaces, I talked to a lot of leaders who can actually identify safe people, safe spaces, uh, safe practices for Mm -hmm. them for soul care, but it's not actually happening. They, they have them, um, but it's not being prioritized because of all the demands of leadership and the work that we do. It feels so huge and important. You know, the work of leadership, the work of being a woman in a space where I feel like our voices need to be represented. It's like, how Mm -hmm. do I ever lay that mantle down? You know, the work of being an Asian American woman in spaces that need representation. How do you ever lay that down so that you can just go be and exhale. But, um, like, you know, like you said, it's so critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This has been hugely, hugely beneficial. I have learned so so glad. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, um, especially taking the time away from, from work and all the amazing (laughs) things that, that you're doing just to share with us and to share so vulnerably. And I think there's so much, um, so much of value that you shared, uh, but also just really, really good, healthy challenge in the midst of all of that stuff that I know I'm going to chew on and, and I'm sure everyone else will too. So just on behalf of everybody, I just really want to thank you for this, Jenny. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Good. I enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest. Remember to subscribe to the Table Podcast and follow along on social media at the Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. And finally, you can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.